And tonight we're going to be looking at, again, verse 17 through 25. We're going to read that together, or I'm going to read it in just a moment. In many ways, this is really a response. If you guys, uh, some of you, I know, you don't, you're not on the news, and praise God for that. You're probably a happier person uh, because of it. But uh, there's been a lot of Christian leaders who have fallen uh, in recent months, and certainly in recent years. Uh, Rabbi Zacharias is one of them. Uh, and so I've been really sad about that news this week. This sermon's not to dive into all those topics, but I just found it quite interesting. If that's something heavy on your mind tonight, I I think this passage has a lot to say about what pastors, what leaders should do, what the church should do for the leaders and vice versa. And I think this will really bless us tonight. Let's look at verse 17 and following. It says, the elders who are good leaders, we'll emphasize this, the good ones, you say not the bad ones, but the good ones, elders, in other words, is also pastor. The elders who are good leaders are to be considered worthy of double honor. We're going to talk about that in a few minutes, but double honor literally means uh, to show honor multiple ways. It means uh, every commentator I read believes it's two things at least. Number one is respect, which we'll look at, and also uh, finances, uh, actually for the pastor to get paid for what he's doing. And I've been terrified of preaching this passage all week because it seems so self-serving. So let me just bring that out there right away. I know this seems weird, but... Honestly, what we do, we just go through the Bible, and when it happens there, we just have to talk about it. Especially those who work hard. I love this verse. Who work hard at preaching and teaching? Friends, it's hard to preach, okay? It's hard to rhyme. No, I'm just kidding. The rhyming stuff comes easy. Um, but no, so preaching is difficult. I, I just love that verse. I just, anyways, verse 18. For the scripture says, do not muzzle an ox while it is treading out the grain. You don't know what that means. Literally, the ox were the one that were helping get all of the crops in the field. And to muzzle it, to put something over the mouth, is saying to the ox, you need to bring forth the fruit from this field, but you will not enjoy any of it. It means to do all the hard work so that everybody can enjoy the fruit, but you, ox, you are not allowed to partake in the blessing. And he's saying, don't do that. Allow him to eat while he's treading out the grain. And then he says, he quotes another piece of scripture that says, the worker is worthy of his wages. But it goes on. This passage a whole lot more than about honoring the elder and how to give them what they are worth. But verse 19, it goes on to say, don't accept an accusation against an elder unless it is supported by two or three witnesses. Publicly rebuke those who sin. Happens a lot when pastors or church leaders of any kind, there are times when they're clearly caught in sin and the wrong thing to do is just to kind of get rid of the issue and not make a big deal about it. He is saying, call it out, rebuke it in front of everybody, what this person has done, so that why? The rest will be afraid. This should cause caution to the rest of us not to just continue to pursue sin and to abuse people and think we can get away with it. Verse 21, I solemnly charge you before God and Christ Jesus and the elect angels to observe these things without prejudice, doing nothing out of favoritism, in other words, being very honest, even though you love this person, even if you love this pastor, be honest. If he is in sin, you have to call it out. God himself is watching. Don't be too quick to appoint anyone as an elder or as a pastor, right? And don't share in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. 23, let me just say this, as you know, I, we're Baptists. I don't know if that, maybe that makes one of some of you walk out. It's hilarious how some people just want to cross out verse 23. I'm fine with verse 23. Let me just say that. But some people kind of freak out because it says, don't continue drinking only water, but a little wine, right? Use a little wine because your stomach and your frequent illnesses. I relate to Timothy here because I have some tummy problems every once in a while, right? So like, even he has tummy problems. I love it. Verse 24, TMI, I, I get it. Okay, so some people, and by the way, Baptists that, 
there's a joke that we don't dance and we don't drink and we don't chew and we don't go out with girls who do. Okay, so verse 24. <laughs> Some people's sins are obvious, preceding them to judgment. But the sins of others, we saw that this week, surface later. Likewise, here's the flip side of it. It's good. Good works are obvious. And those that are not obvious cannot remain hidden. This is an encouragement to us. When we're doing good deeds, we're not supposed to do it to get praise, but no, eventually those good deeds will be seen. They will be felt. They will be heard. The title of the message tonight is Pastoring the Way of Jesus. Pastoring the Way of Jesus. Would you pray with me? Father, we ask you, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, to be among us tonight. God, as we go through this scripture again, verse by verse, I pray that our hearts will be open to what you would have for us. I pray, God, that we as a church would see this as another opportunity to love each other, to hold each other accountable, and to just embody you, Jesus, to our community. God, give me the words to speak tonight, and may we have the ears to hear. In Jesus' name I pray. Everybody says? Amen. 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 I want to ask you a question. What do you expect from your pastor? What do you expect from your pastor? What is always true throughout history, I'm going to do a bit of a history lesson tonight. What is always true is some will always wrongly put pastors on a pedestal. They can do no wrong. But also, some will always wrongly use their pastors as pedestals, saying, I will use and abuse you. You can never call me out, but I can live my whole life calling you out, using you for my own gain, but never the other way around. So I really think this passage tonight in a, in, a, in a great sense, it holds up the office of pastor, but not on a pedestal. It's a really fine balance, and I want us to walk through what that looks like. Historians, Christian historians like Greg Allison, when you look at church history, I'm talking church history, so since the birth of Jesus, you, typically people divide the church into four eras. You have the early church era, the Middle Ages, the Reformation, and then the modern age, okay? So these are the four different eras that you have. So the question, again, I, I pose is what do you expect from your pastor? I think throughout these different eras, the church at large, and again, I'm talking broad strokes here. You could, of course, find churches throughout every era, believe different things, but again, it's a broad stroke. I want to walk through quickly with you four ways the church has expected the pastors what they've expected them to be. And I think some things are good and some things are, of course, wrong. Number one, pastors back in the day in the early church, the pastors were the exiled. They were the ones who were cast out. I did have the executed, but I thought, you know, let's keep it PG, even though I know I just said it, so it kind of takes away the whole point. But the exile, meaning the pastor was the one leading the way and being rejected by the world. You as the church would look to your pastor for courage. You would see your pastor get killed for his faith and it would actually embolden you to do the same. The pastor was called to lead the way in persecution, not looking for persecution, but also not backing down. Pastors led the way in bravery and they were killed for their faith. It gave others, again, the courage to do the same. They were heroes of the faith. Now, of course, there were bad pastors in this early church era, just how there have always been bad pastors throughout history. But they led the way in saying, we are exiled people. This world is not our own. We are, we are of another world, but we will love and serve this one. So that was the early church. The pastors were held in high regard, and rightly so, and hopefully most of them took that as an honor and did not abuse it. But then you have the Middle Ages. In the Middle Ages, a lot of things got messed up. Uh, but the pastor was really known as the exorcist. What do I mean by that? They really wielded the power of the Spirit. See, this is very hard for us to imagine today because we are so 
post, post, postmodern. I don't know what uh, college students, you can correct me later. What are we called nowadays? But we are so against spiritual things. Um, but, but here in this era, in the Middle Ages, people absolutely believed in, in, in the spirit. They believed in magic. They believed in the, the other realm. And so they would look to pastors as the people who were the most powerful. They can wield that power. In fact, I was reading about this in a book called Pastor in a Secular Age by Andrew Root. And he was saying people actually only took the Lord's Supper once a year because they felt like they had to, but they were terrified. Why? Because they knew that the Lord's Supper was so powerful and special that if they approached it with any sin in their life, they believed they could possibly die. Today we go, that didn't taste very good. Can you get us something else next week, right? Like, we're just a little bit upset, and I've been upset, too. Those COVID-friendly ones are just nasty, all right? But they understood something there. There was more spiritual. But pastors abused this, of course, and began to make things up and say, I'm a pastor, I'm the exorcist, I'm magical, just listen to me. But you do have one, a positive example. You have Thomas Beckett in the 1100s. He famously opposed, I learned this in high school, he famously opposed King Henry II, and he was murdered for it because he was calling out the sin of King Henry. He was murdered for it in 1170. A whole play was made after him. But we actually see 50 years after Thomas Becket's death, his bones were placed in a shrine where people could literally go and touch Thomas Becket's bones to receive power from God. I say this to say the pastor was held in really high regard, possibly on too much of a pedestal. But so the pastor had power. Then you have the next in the Reformation era and following. The pastor was no longer the exiled, especially here in America. The pastor was no longer the exorcist. People no longer believe that as much, especially because the Enlightenment period. The pastor was the expert. So instead of the pastor wielding the power of the spirit, now the pastor's job was to wield the power of the mind. They were the most educated person in the congregation. You have somebody like Jonathan Edwards in the 1700s, brilliant theologian. Sadly, he has some big scars on, on the things that he's done. He owned slaves. But, but this man was a brilliant man. And what's interesting, what I kind of covet about Jonathan Edwards and the era in the 1700s is literally it says Jonathan Edwards just preached very boringly from a manuscript. He just read line by line because the people did not expect the pastor to be an entertainer. The people just wanted the truth, and they knew the pastor had the most knowledge of this Bible, and so they would just come, and their one job was to speak hours on end. Don't worry, we don't do that anymore, right? If you, if you want that from me, I'm on YouTube a lot, okay? But hours on end, just giving facts, giving just really smart theological treatises. So again, the church began to not really even, even to talk about demons became strange. It's certainly strange today. Now it's about depression, it's about anxiety, it's about self-control and order. And so the pastor is the expert that can help you give the most life hacks and to point you hopefully to Jesus. Now we've ushered into the era we're in today, I believe we view the pastor as the executive. In the modern age today we have, they don't wield the power of the spirit anymore. You don't wield the power even of the mind. You really wield the power of motivation. You need to be inspiring and you need to be a very competent businessman. Your worth is how many buildings you have built. How, many pack, how, how can you package the sermon series to where now it can be mass produced across the nation? How many books have you written? The more books you've written shows the more authority you have, shows the more following and money you should get. 
all over the place. It just keeps going. Now, part of this is because some people have just been good at this. One person through recent history is Rick Warren. Since the 1990s, he just changed the definition of success. He really introduced megachurch culture. He changed the sermons to be more practical, but his own giftings, he's a brilliant man. He reads one book a day. That's crazy, all right? I pumped about 100 a year. He reads 365 a year, apparently, but he has an executive mind. He knows how to do business. But now the church at large expects every pastor to be business-minded, to be the CEO. If there's not a ton of people, if the room is not packed, the pastor must be wrong. But friends, let me tell you, I've been to many uh, church services where the service was packed, but I never heard about King Jesus. It's a really bad way to judge success. I'm not saying big churches are bad. I'm not saying small churches are good. But I am saying some of us, we've been using the wrong metrics and we've been expecting the wrong thing from our pastors, especially because every pastor is gifted differently, just how every one of you are gifted uniquely and differently. And so again, we're in an era where bigger is always better. A passage, a book, if you're somebody who wants to go into pastoral ministry, I always offer to read this book by John Piper. It's called Brothers, We Are Not Professionals. It's a good reminder that friends, our chief job is, we're not called to be an executive. In fact, it's more like the exile, giving our life to others, loving and serving the church and being willing to die for it and loving Jesus every step of the way. So these are the expectations. And I'm going to be honest, as a pastor, I feel this. I feel these expectations. I look down on myself at times because I know I am failing as an executive. We don't even have our own building yet, right? These are things that I feel, but these passages like what we're looking at today is a good reminder what truly matters. And we're going to look at that. But before we talk about what we should expect from pastors, you're going to have fun tonight because it's like, hey, pastor, you need to do better. It's going to be great. But before that, let me talk about you. Okay. So we're going to talk about expectations from pastors. But before we jump too far into that, let's talk about the expectations of church members. It's fun to talk about what the pastors should do, but a lot of us would rather run over and quickly uh, skip what church should do for their pastor. So I have three points quickly to write down. Again, the, our notes are always available at passioncreek.com. Uh, the sermon notes button is there. It's also on our app. Number one, we're, we even look in this passage when it says double honor, church members must pay respect to their pastors. A few weeks ago, I mean, a few months ago, I guess, this really, I, I'm going to mention it again just because a lot of people said it's super helpful. Uh, as a, a true biblical pastor, my job is not just to offer you reassurance encouragement, motivation. I think part of that is true, as long as Jesus is exalted. But also, not just reassurance, the pastor needs to offer you redirection. But that redirection can only be received if you respect the pastor. If you do not respect whoever is on this pulpit, you're only going to take the parts you like and just completely avoid the things you don't like. And if you do that, over time, you really won't begin to look like Jesus. So again, I will say this again. If you do not find me as somebody that's worthy of respect, I, I ask you to find another church. The best thing for your soul is to be under a pastor you respect and you would love to honor. Amen. And it's best for both of us. If, we, if, you, if, that, if that don't work out, okay, bye. Don't leave yet. That'll be real awkward, okay? Stay, <laughs> stay for the rest of this service, but then say peace, okay? Hebrews 13, 17 is one uh, scripture. Uh, sorry, go on to the next slide, and then we'll go back to this. Hebrews 13, 17, it says, obey your leaders and submit to them, since they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. You think that's cool? That's terrifying, okay? 
Every time a new person walks in, I put their name down. I go, okay, God, I'm giving a give. I got to give an account for that one. Okay, it's you know, it's a, it's a privilege, but it's also scary. Um, they must give an account so that they can do this with joy, and not with grief. For that would be unprofitable for you. I still keep, I would love for you to think that through more because I keep thinking how that's unprofitable for the pastor, of course. If you're just a grief in my life, not a joy, that's not profitable for me. But, but the scriptures are claiming by you giving your pastor joy, it's profitable for you, not just for the pastor. I know this sounds self-serving. Don't worry, I'm going to hit on pastors the rest of this time. You're going to feel great, okay? But I have to do this because it's scripture. So that's point number one. Church members must pay respect to their pastors. Point number two, churches must pay their pastors. I like, who said amen? I like him. I'm just kidding. <laughs> Listen, we see that in verse 18. Do not muzzle an ox while still treading out the grain, and the worker is worthy of his Wages. Now, here's the thing, too. Let me just say this. It's not just that church members should pay the pastor. It's that, in other words, I've met people. They're like, yes, yes, pastors should get paid. Okay, cool. Do you give to the church? Oh, no, no, no. But they better give so that you get money. Yeah, they better do that. That sounds like a good idea, right? So let me just encourage you to reflect. I'm not going to push too hard on this. I also know we're all on a different part of our journey, but some of us, I feel like the Holy Spirit's been telling us to take a step of obedience in this direction. We must be willing to give. I believe 10% of, of your money is the Lord's money already. It's not even your money. It's the Lord's money. And for us, me and my wife, we've always tried to do above and beyond that. Um, but 10% is the Lord's. And so, so here, let me just quickly explain. And I, I, I know I have so much more to go through. So let me just say this very quickly. A quick overview of our budget. Because some people say, oh, every time I give money, it just goes straight to the pastor. Have you, I only got one vehicle. So you can't say I'm like rocking it with, with cars, okay? That's actually a real thing too. Like I've been looking through vehicles to get. And I've been thinking in my mind, even if it's a good deal, if people think that I spend a lot of money on it, they're going to start being mad at me as a pastor. I should drive a, a car that barely works. So I've done that for like 10 years now. And I'm tired of doing that. Because you wind up paying more money at the person fixing the car than just having a nice car. But anyways, that's a whole nother discussion. But our budget, just so you quickly know, is 40, 30, 2010. 40, 30, 2010. 40% goes to staff. Me, Caleb, Jeremy, and we're all bivocational. Well, Jeremy, like he has a full-time job, but he helps us, right? And then we have Shay as well doing our admin worship. So 40% of what you give to our church goes towards that, towards supporting us. We all have different jobs. Because where we're at, and that's fine. The, the, amount of, the size we're at, that just we won't be able to live off that, and that's cool uh, for now, right? That's 40%. So now what do you do the rest of 60%? 30% for us as a church, we've said this since day one, is towards facilities. For us, God has been gracious to our church. We do pay rent here. This isn't a free ride, but it is cheaper than Harkins, okay? So what we've been doing, just so you know, the difference between the Harkins payment and this payment, we've just been saving, so the day when the Lord gives us an opportunity to purchase a building, purchase land, whatever it is, I want to make sure that we have some saving in the bank so we can say, yes, we have money to back it up. We want this property. So for the 30% of our budget, if it's not going towards rent, fixing something here in this facility, it is absolutely the rest of that 30% is going towards our future building. Well, I just want to remind you, this is not our home here, but we're super grateful to be here in the time being with COVID and everything. This has been so good for us, but we do have vision for something else in the future. 20% goes to all things ministry. 
That includes like our once a month family feast that we have. That includes serving those in our community. That includes growth group curriculum, material, anything you just see that you receive, uh, the red boxes, all those things in that 20% category. And 10% goes towards missions. 10% of our money doesn't stay with us at all. We send it out and we are part of the largest missionary agency in the world. We support Christians. I think I mentioned this, oh, in growth group. I have learned this week, Iran is experiencing the greatest spread of Christianity that some people think has never been rivaled throughout all of history. The the way Christ is growing in Iran is mind-blowing. When you give to our church, we give to that. We have missionaries there. I can't say their name because that would compromise them. I have a lot of friends. I can't mention their name, but they're in unreached places where it's illegal to share the gospel. And every time you give, we give a portion of that to those overseas. So I want to make sure you know that. So pay their pastors. They're worthy of it. And I think it's one of those where, you know, like just try that job for a week and you'll recognize it's more difficult than it looks. Number three, and I have to hurry because the rest, that's not even, I'm not even at the sermon yet. This is free, okay? But you should pay for it. No, I'm just kidding. You get it? Church members must righteously and lovingly hold pastors accountable. This is the harder one that pastors don't like to talk about. But you need to righteously and lovingly, make sure you do the two at the same time, please, right? Hold pastors accountable. Verse 19 through 21, we just learned from Paul, don't jump at the first hint of gossip. Let me tell you, I have had times where people have have shared uh, the wrong version of who I am to people. But as a pastor, there are times where I just have to allow that to happen. Because if I give the truth of what really happened in that situation, I wind up slamming that other person and making them look bad. And I'd rather just make me look bad than that person look bad. Does that make sense? So you don't always get the full story. But you do need to hold us accountable because sometimes we're pretty messed up people. So that's why I just want to be honest about that. And we are not above criticism. I am not above accountability at all. In fact, if you, don't, if you don't hold me accountable, that is damning for my own soul, let alone yours. This is a family game here. It's not a game, but this is a family. We hold each other accountable. We love each other. So what is expected from pastors? <sighs> now the sermon started. Don't worry. The Suns game's at seven. You'll be there in time for that. Now, write this down. Pastors must flee from the sin of sloth. I think what we see here, what's expected from pastors, number one, I think, pastors must flee, run away from the sin of sloth or laziness. Verse 17, again, it says, the elders who are good elders are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. And it talks about how the worker is worthy of his wages. They work hard at preaching and teaching. Again, like many jobs, pastoring at face value doesn't really seem like hard work. But I could argue all of our jobs are hard. And pastoring is. Okay, okay. When done correctly, pastoring is exhausting. With everything happening in 2020, the most recent data says 70% of pastors today in America are considering quitting ministry because of how hard it's been. You say one thing about a piece of cloth and half the people love you, half the people hate you. You speak into one situation about something that's happening in America Half the people love you. Half the people hate you. It's very difficult to speak truth. I think the thing about pastoring, everybody here suffers vigorously. Pastors have a unique responsibility to also suffer vicariously. So it's my job when you're suffering, I must partake in your suffering with you. I must weep with you. When you're rejoicing though, I get to rejoice with you. That's a part of the gig. Pastoring is usually hard, but it's always heavy. 
It's always heavy if you're doing it correctly. But here's the thing. Because after a while doing this, it gets so hard. And then, especially if you've been in ministry for a little while, I'm fourth generation pastor, so I can talk about pastors, okay? There is a way where you can learn to cut corners and get lazy in ministry and still look like you're doing a lot. I've seen it a lot. They must stay away from this sin of sloth, and it's easy to fall into it. And the church must hold me accountable, Pastor Caleb accountable, to make sure we're not lazy. But some of y'all, if you think that's my job, it's not your job, okay? The person who thinks it's my job makes you accountable, it's probably not you. Now, Let's look at this. Here's what the sin of sloth looks like. Next slide. The sin of sloth is more bent on making people happy than making people holy. How does the sin of sloth appear in the pastor's life? When I'm prepping, when me and Caleb are leading, we're thinking, what will make the most people happy? That's lazy thinking. That's evil thinking. Now, let me just say, holiness, I believe, leads to abundant happiness. But happiness doesn't always lead to holiness. So our first and foremost goal is holiness. And we believe you're going to be a happy person despite circumstances. Jesus says that you'll be happy in him. But let me just say this, though. It is, especially today, it is so easy to preach to the choir. It's so, I have some lines that I've written down that are good to everybody to say amen. But it doesn't help any of us. Because there's a way to talk about the world out there and it makes us so excited that we're not like them. But that's what the Pharisees do. They get together to praise God that I'm not like that person. But the gospel is we first look at ourselves. We make sure that we're pursuing the way of Jesus. Our first step is forward in repentance and love. It's really easy to make people happy today because people are so triggered. But it's important for us to make people holy. And that means speaking truth even when it hurts. C.S. Lewis actually has uh, this, this whole paragraph. It talks about, essentially, he, he makes the case that the busy ones are the lazy ones. So even if you look busy, some pastors that are busy, they're actually partaking in the sin of sloth. Why? They're allowing everybody to control their calendar instead of being a leader and thinking through, okay, what's important versus what's urgent? What do our people need versus what do our people want? The lazy person just, what do you want? Okay, I'm going to give it to you. The godly leader says, but what do you need? And this is going to be hard, but I know it's what you need. Hope that makes sense. So, next point, sub-point under that. What does this mean for pastors? Pastors must engage in the hard work of preaching. Again, it's easy to preach to the choir, but it's very hard to preach to our own idols. And so what we must do, what pastors must do, and it says the hard work of preaching and teaching, Charles Spurgeon says you have the scriptures in one hand and the newspaper in the other. What we're called to do is to examine culture and recognize where we are falling short and bring light to that, where we go wrong, not where the world goes wrong. A lot of us already know that. Where are we going wrong? Or else we'll just, we're just like the world. Real quick, here's the hard work of preaching. I have to, oh, there's so much in this. I love preaching and pastoring. So of course, I like to talk about it. There is this thing called exegesis versus eisegesis. Anybody heard of that before? Great. Okay. Now I know who all my nerd friends are. Now, exegesis is when, okay, or exposition. Um, exegesis is where you look at the passage and you say, okay, God, whatever the passage says is what I'm going to preach. Okay. So 1 Timothy 5, 17 through 25. Oh, it's about pastors and getting paid. Guess I have to do it. You know, oh, poor me, right? No, whatever. But we just have to preach it. Eisegesis 
So, so exegesis says, okay, God, I have no preconceived notions. I have no assumptions of what I want to preach this week. What does your Bible say? I'm going to learn that, then I'm going to share that. I said, Jesus say, okay, God, here's what I think I, the people want. Here's what I think sounds great. Here's what I think sounds motivational. Are there any scriptures to back me up? You see the difference there? And it is a very slippery slope. And you know what? I said, Jesus, it sells. It gets people pumped. And I think exegesis does too, but I'm just saying. But it's hard work to say, okay, I know what the world wants me to say, but what does the word want me to say? And start there. And that takes some hard work, especially in today's culture. I think always, but let's move on. So what else is expected of pastors? Verse 19 says, don't accept an accusation against an elder unless it is supported by two or three witnesses. Publicly rebuke those who sin so that the rest will be afraid. I solemnly charge you before God and Christ Jesus and the elect angels to observe these things without prejudice, doing nothing out of favoritism. Look, elders usually use their influence to force people to, to blind their eyes to their sin. So he's saying, make sure you, you, you do this without favoritism. I don't care how great this pastor was. I don't, I don't care how much this pastor brought other people into your life and helped change your life. If he has sin, you have to call it out. Pastors have a way of knowing Oh, I have a person of influence. I have changed your life before. You better not call me out. I've helped you. You better not hurt me. It's a scary place to be in. Here's what we must expect from pastors. Number two, again, I know I've done a million points, but broad point number two, pastors must flee from the sin of coercion. Pastors must flee from the sin of coercion. It's very difficult. Ministry is slow. Ministry is difficult because you want people to change and you love them, but you also know you can't force people to do anything. You can bring the horse to the water trough, but the horse is the one that has to drink the water. Amen? And all my Queen Creek guys are like, I get it now, right? <laughs> Pastoring, you feel like you're like, can you just go left? And they go right. And you're like, no! You know, and so, but sometimes in the flesh, pastors begin to use their authority to bully people. No, you must do this. You have to give here. You can't leave this church. They use coercion because they cannot trust anything else. Here's a great quote by Eugene Peterson. He says, everybody treats us so nicely. He's talking about the pastor. No one seems to think we mean what we say. Sometimes I feel that way, okay? okay. When we say kingdom of God, no one gets apprehensive as if we had just announced, which we thought we had, that a powerful army is poised on the border ready to invade. When we say radical things like Christ, love, believe, peace, and sin, words that in other times and cultures excited martyrdoms, the sounds enter the stream of conversation with no more splash than baseball scores and grocery prices. It gets really discouraging. When you talk about the love of God, I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Hey, babe, Tom Brady's winning again right? How old is he? I was so impressed how many people came last week. Shout out to you guys. Maybe because you hate Tom Brady, you know, or whatever. Um, but let me just say this. After years of preaching like this and seeing glazed over eyes, you start to say, you know what? I can start forcing people to do things because just preaching isn't working. And that's a bad place to be. And I'm not saying that's right, but pastors can fall into this temptation. Write this down. The sin of coercion walks in a hurried spirit, and blocks the Holy Spirit. As a pastor, as a Christian leader in general, if, I am, if, if a pastor is walking in a hurried spirit, forcing things to change, he is blocking the Holy Spirit, and you must hold that pastor accountable. 
without favoritism, verse 21 says. It's before the heavenly courts. Because here's the reality. It's really easy today to look like you're successful as a Christian, as a pastor, even when you're not. Because growing today, if you just grow, have big buildings, you're successful. No questions asked. If you're stagnating, if you can't fill a 700-person auditorium by year five, you must be a failure. In today's American economics, bigger is better. Therefore, if you're growing, you're good. If you're not, you're bad. Pastors feel that pressure. So they begin to force it. You have to give. You have to invite your friends. We've got to get this thing. We've got to blow this thing out. We've got to get another building. And sometimes that's good. That leadership is good at times. But other times, have you prayed about that? Have you asked God if maybe you needed another building or is this one good enough? Have you prayed that maybe in this season it's good for us not to have a building? No, we got bigger is better, better is bigger. Not always the case. And I think we block the Holy Spirit. This is why, next point, pastors must engage in the hard work of praying. I don't know if you know this, but if you've gone to our church at least a couple times, you wind up on my Quizlet app. Me and Caleb share this Quizlet. It's just a flashcard app. And I always hesitate to mention this, but I think it might give you some encouragement. We pray for you by name every single week. That's one reason why I love being a smaller church. I know you by name, and I don't think I have to know everybody in my name. Like Everybody has to really be connected to me, but I just want to tell you it's a privilege to pray for you and to love you in that way. But praying is hard. Anybody tried it before? <laughs> right? It's, it's hard. But the scriptures say, pastors, one of the first jobs is to preach the word and to pray. But praying takes patience. Praying takes humility. Praying means sometimes God tells you something you wish he didn't tell you. So you walk in a hurried spirit instead. You avoid what God is calling out in your life, and you just spend all your life calling out others. This is where a lot of pastors, I don't want to be that guy. This is where some pastors have fallen into, and it is damaging to the witness of the church. A.C. Dixon, such a good quote. He says, when we depend upon organizations, like the executive does, we get what organizations can do. When we, depend on upon, when we depend upon education, we get what education can do, which is some good stuff, right? When we depend upon man, we get what man can do. But when we depend upon prayer, we get what God can do. Don't you think in today's era, we need a whole lot more than organizations, education, and men to fix this thing? Why aren't we praying more? We need prayer because we need to do what only God can do. And honestly, as your pastor, as pastors, we should be leading the way in doing this. Not just talking about it, but doing it. Last one. Pastors must flee from the sin of celebrity. Verse 24 says, Some people's sins are obvious, preceding them to judgment, but the sins of others surface later. The scary thing about celebrities is they seem amazing, but you, they, you keep, they keep everybody at a distance. That's what makes them a celebrity. They're untouchable. Pastors were never built to be celebrities. I've been horrified this week. Ravi Zacharias, who's a great man of, well, sorry, he did great apologetic work. His, many of his sins have been found out after his death. If you don't know who he is, he was a really famous person on YouTube and all sorts of stuff. And the problem was, as the, the research has come out, everybody ignored the accusations. They didn't take this because they said when two or three accusations, there was, multi, there was more than two or three witnesses on these accusations. But they said, but it's Ravi. 
He's a celebrity. Everybody loves him. He's done so much. So many people came to Jesus because of him. And so they made him untouchable, which brought the whole thing to the ground. Something I've noticed, some people just want to be on a winning team. You notice that? Some people just want to go be a part of organizations because it looks like they're growing. And so in their mind, oh, I'm going to be a part of that because then it feels like I'm growing, right? I want to be a part of a huge church because then it feels like I'm doing something huge, even though all you're doing is just showing up and leaving, right? But we like that winning team mentality. And I think we love it so much. We love winning so much. We love success so much. We love building so much. We love budget so much. We overlook arrogance. We overlook false teaching. We overlook the fact that he's not talking about sin anymore. We overlook the manipulation because we're growing. Book sales are at all time high. YouTube is up, which I'm not going to lie. I like when my YouTube's up, okay? You know, it's not, I'm not saying pastors shouldn't be known to some degree, but they should never be celebrities. How, how do you know you have the sin of celebrity in your life? The sin of celebrity is more bent on making an impression than making an impact. More bent on making an impression than making an impact. That's something for my life, a discipline I've been trying to put in. It's actually because of verse 25, talking about how good works are obvious, but there are some that are not as obvious, but they won't remain hidden. But I actually think it's my job as a pastor, as a Christian, let me just say that, because I think all of us should be applying all this to our own lives in our own context. We should be doing some good deeds in, hidden, because it means that we're doing it for the right reason. It's called the discipline of secrecy, giving to others in secret, not letting them know it was you. Praying for others in secret, not ringing the bell that I pray for you, even though I just did that five minutes ago. Hey, guys, I pray for you every week, so don't do what I do. But look, doing these things in secret, not tooting your own horn. This is the way of Jesus, the way of humility, taking the lower position. This is what Jesus constantly did. Woe to us when we refuse to serve in secret. If you refuse to serve in secret, that means you are always just serving yourself. And in today's world, evangelicalism, it's very easy just to be the person that makes an impression and does everything for the world to see. And I know the irony because I post on YouTube three times a week, okay? But there's a balance here. So this is the last point. Pastors must engage in the hard work of listening. I think to go against that, against the grain of making sure we're making not an impression but an impact, we must do the hard work of listening. The worst type of leader, a pastor you must hold accountable, is somebody who demands to be listened to, but never spends time listening to. Scary position for somebody, a man or woman of God, who demands everybody listens, but they don't listen to anybody. Criticism's hard to listen to, and a lot of times it's just dumb. I got some weird comments this week. I'm like, you're just wrong, but... My spiritual director says, but did God send that? Did God do that to humble you? What's the truth there? Because there's always a truth somewhere in there. And it's scary when we as a church culture say, don't worry, pastor, we'll make sure nobody hears. You, you'll never hear that criticism. Sometimes I think God wants us to hear it. Now, don't send me emails tonight, okay? I've had enough criticism this week. You know what I'm saying? So I'm this, I hope you don't see this as, yeah, I'm going to tear you up after this one in the name of Jesus, right? But we do need to spend time listening. Be wary of a pastor, of a Christian, who does not humble himself, even listening to children. Right? Everybody has something from God that we can listen to. Celebrities put yes men and women around them, and they only listen to those who only say what they want to listen to. So again, let me end this by saying, look, pastors, but let me just say Christians. 
we must flee from the sin of sloth. Christian, we must stop trying to make people happy and recognize our calling is to lead people to holiness. We can't make people do anything. So I'm just going to change the phrase there. We're leading people to holiness more than we are to happiness. Pastor, Christian, we must flee the sin of coercion. We cannot walk in a hurried spirit because in so doing, we will block the Holy Spirit. We can't force anything. We have to rely on God to do the transforming work in us and around us. May we all flee from the sin of celebrity. Maybe some of us support it. Maybe some of us want it. May we be repulsed at the thought of making an impression rather than making an impact. But here's what I want to make sure. I feel like the takeaway from all this is to say, yeah, see, people are just terrible. Don't trust man. Trust Jesus alone. And part of me says, yes, amen. Jesus will never let you down. He will never leave you nor forsake you. Jesus is perfect. I am not. No pastor is. Amen. We have one hero today, and his name is Jesus. But at the same time, man, pastors should be trustworthy. Leaders in your life should hold that as a privilege and use it to care for you, not coerce you. This week, I was pushing, uh, I, I, I feel like such a good husband, you know, Valentine's Day coming up, you know. So, which is today, by the way, men, like we got flowers for you in the back. Don't worry if you're, okay. We'll give you credit that you bought all of it just for her, right? So, but I was like, my wife just wasn't feeling the greatest. And you can't say that, right? You know, she's great. She's fine. We tested her. Okay, you know, whatever. But she wasn't feeling great. So like, babe, take a nap. I'll be good. You know, I'll put away the, this hard work of preaching and teaching. You know, I'll just put that away for a while. So I, got, I took the two girls. The oldest was at school. So I just went into the backyard and I was, they're on the swing. So not only was I a good husband, I was a good dad. <laughs> I was like, yes, Lord. Yeah, you know. <laughs> So I was pushing them back and forth, having a good time, and they have games where I have to say, come here, come here, and I say, go away, and they just laugh, and it's the cutest thing ever. Well, then, you know, I'm a dad. I'm a guy, I should have said, so I, of course, can't just, I had to, like, throw some flair in there, you know? I had to, like, you know, push them, you know, in different ways. I couldn't just push them. They don't know how to swing, is what I'm saying, so I had to keep pushing them. So there was one time where I acted like I wasn't, and then I ran, and I pushed Sayla. I, I threw her, man. I just was like, you're going to enjoy this. She didn't know it was coming, which was part of the joke. But she wasn't holding on to nothing. So when she was pushed, she immediately did a front flip back all the way away from the grass, and she landed headfirst into the rocks. I am not a good dad. Am I God? So I immediately ran there. Like, literally, her feet, like, hit over. It was bad. And so I said, Lord, first of all, like, literally, I was like, I pray she's not paralyzed. I, like, that's the first thought came to my mind. But I also did not want to look at her face because I knew it would be bloody. So I just grabbed her and held her. I said, I'm so sorry, honey. I'm so sorry. And in that moment, by the way, she's okay. She's walking, and um, she looks like major road rash. Uh, it's rock rash from her father, okay? But in that moment, I sh it's not like I said, See, Selah, you shouldn't trust man. I'm just a guy. I'm just your earthly father. Your heavenly father will never do this to you but me. <laughs> I'm crazy, man. Watch out. Next week, might do it to you again. Right? That's, no leader would say that. No parent would say that. I, so I told Sarah, I said, I'm sorry. I have let you down, honey. I should have never done that. We're going to make sure you're going to be okay. I will never do that to you again, honey. And Sarah's like, I know. It was an accident. I said, I know it was, right? But the takeaway is not, you never have to trust me anymore. The takeaway is, it is a privilege of a lifetime to be your father, and I will make sure I'm following the rules when we go on swings. 
And in pastoring, I think a lot of us get a pass. Ah, you're just a man. You just abused a few people. Leaders need to be held to a high regard. And they must be worthy of holding that in high regard. So I just want to say sorry if, if I've ever let you down. I, I don't think I've ever meant it, but I want to say sorry, and I hope to not do that again. If you've had church hurt in the past, I can only apologize for so much, but I'm sorry that the church has hurt you in the past. It shouldn't be that way. The message shouldn't just be, it's all about, it is all about Jesus, but man, his people better be better. We as men and women of God, we should be worthy of trust because we're being transformed by the love of God. But let me do say, ultimately, every human will let you down. But the God-man never will. King Jesus came to this earth, lived the perfect life. He was that perfect mixture of tough and tender. He was that fully loving and yet fully truthful. He was perfect. And he lived this life of perfection for you and for me. When he went to the cross, he took the judgment you and I deserve, all the wrongdoings that we've done in abusing others, manipulating others, hurting our own selves. And Jesus took all that punishment on him on the cross. See, a bad leader punishes others. The King of kings and Lord of lords, he took all that punishment on himself. He didn't deserve any of it. And he rose again in victory And we can trust Jesus because he has forgiven us of our past, our present, and even our future when we believe in him. He's a good, good leader. He rose again in victory. He defeated sin. He defeated Satan. He defeated death. I want to make sure you know I I would be remiss to talk about these leaders as pastors. We need to be great. But ultimately, we have a good shepherd, and his name is Jesus. But friends, you must receive him. You must take that step of faith in believing him. You cannot have it both ways. But I'm pleading with you tonight, if you've never made that decision, believe in Jesus, repent of your sin, turn away from it, recognize what Jesus has done for you through the cross and the resurrection and receive new life and life in abundance, life in community, practicing his ways together.